This morning we're going to finish our series on discipleship, and uh, the next two Sundays from here, I'm excited about uh, If you've been here from the beginning, Waypoint's only about two years old now, two and a half years old, and so I've been very systematic as far as my approach to laying foundations for the church. We're young, and uh, this is the time, starting fresh, to build a solid foundation, and so I don't want to be hasty as we move forward building we took our time establishing church leadership biblically in Scripture. Um, I taught on that quite extensively. And uh, we saw biblically the model is there's a plurality of elders, and then there's a deacon body as well. So we've, we've established our eldership, as you guys know. Uh, three weeks from now, we're going to ins- uh, institute our deacon body, our first deacon body, which we're super excited about. Um, the next step as far as foundations from there is membership. What does membership look like biblically? What is that? And so uh, I've, I've intentionally put off membership, even though it's kind of put us in this weird limbo state, um, because, because really you have to have church leadership established before membership is established. So the next piece of the puzzle is membership. So I'm going to teach next week and the week after on that. Um, then we're going to have our, our um, classes for those interested in actually becoming formal members of Waypoint. Um, if, if you're not there yet, that's fine. Um, we can, you can attend Waypoint all you want. Um, but this, uh, moving forward as far as a formal membership will be next on the radar. November 3rd, I think we're having our deacon, uh, I think that's the date, right? November 3rd. Okay. And then that'll take us into the holiday season. And then I'm excited to move on to the next thing. I don't know what that is yet, but I have some ideas. So today's message is, is really, as far as doctrine and theology, not difficult at all. It's, it's actually something that's so intuitive, um, you're, you're probably going to listen to it and be like, I already know that, Seth. This is the very pragmatic portion of our discipleship series. Um, nonetheless, it's biblical, and it needs to be taught on, and... Uh, the difficulty of it is not understanding the teaching of it. The difficulty is doing it. That's, the, that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, I want to read a quote from uh, Aristotle, kind of smart guy who lived a long time ago. He said this about man. He said, man by nature is a social creature. An individual who is unsocial naturally and not accidentally What he means by that is he doesn't have some kind of physical impairment. Someone who is not, is unsocial naturally and not accidentally is either beneath our notice, meaning he's part of the animal kingdom, or he's more than human. Society is something that precedes the individual. Anyone who either cannot lead the common life or is so self-sufficient as not to need to, and therefore doesn't partake in society, is either a beast or a god. What he means by that is this. Aristotle, Plato is the same way. Plato spoke about this in his book, The Republic, which shaped Western culture. And many, many thinkers up until really um, the last century and a half or so have all recognized that mankind by nature are social people. It's not something out of convenience that they congregate socially. It's part of their nature to congregate socially. Families make up a society and individuals make up a family. They didn't emphasize the individual, though they recognized the individual in its right place. Historically, that's been the case. Today, however, individualism in the West reigns. We actually exalt individualism and individual expression and all these forms over the communal aspects. Um, This has implications across the board, legally, politically, um, ecclesiastically, everything. Individualism and self-expression have become priority. The church, obviously you guys have witnessed this, is not immune to individualism. Um, and unfortunately, there's been some drawbacks to it. Um, what has happened as far as people's approach to church is that our mentality when we come to a church and how we operate within the church has shifted. When we highly focus on individualism, 
we become self-serving over time. Because when I'm focused on me, then church becomes something for me. And if the church isn't meeting my perceived needs, then I can shop around for a new one until I find what I think I need. Now, I'm not suggesting you don't shop around for churches. Um, what I mean by that is this. You do need to test churches. You need to find out what they believe. Uh, are they gospel-centered? Are they biblical? Do they have um, all the biblical tenets that you're looking for? Are they involved in missions, outreach? Um, do they love each other and serve one another? There's definitely biblical things that you go and you test when you're visiting churches. What happens today, though, in most churches is that when people visit churches, they, they don't evaluate a church on biblical grounds necessarily. It's more on consumer grounds. And that's the problem, because church becomes very self-centered. And my contention this morning is this, that when that individualism and that consumerism mentality is, is adopted either by the people coming or even fostered by the leadership when they try to cater to those desires, what happens is that the church actually is unable to even meet the demand to be discipled. Because discipleship by nature is people giving themselves for someone else to building up. When a church is an individualistic, self-seeking church, they're not going to give of themselves for another. They're going to expect the other to give to them. And so you see this. It's, it's so much easier to just, when you get upset at a church or you don't like this or that or whatever, to just leave. Rather than, hey, you know what? Biblically, if I don't like someone in the church, I should pray for it. <laughs> I should see what I can do to help change or bring that about. You don't exercise the spiritual disciplines. It's easier to just go somewhere else. Two weeks ago, when I taught, I talked about what is the goal of discipleship? What are we actually after biblically? What, what in Scripture do we see? And, and we, from Genesis all the way to the New Testament, we see that what, what discipleship is after is what Paul said to the Galatian church. I'm in labor, I'm in the pains of birth again until Christ is formed in you. And we saw how that paralleled the Genesis account, right? God used that very language when He made Adam. He formed Adam out of the dust. The New Testament picks up on that theme as a parallel and says, Christ is being formed in us now. That's discipleship. That's what we're after. We are after not individualism and self-expression. We're after Christ being formed in us so that He might be all in all. He might be seen and glorified in His name and His glory established through the church on earth once again. That's what we're after. I, I want to be less concerned about individualism, although I don't ignore the individual. We're individual members of a body, right? Some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, some are mouths, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Yet we're one body, and each is contributing to the whole, not highlighting itself. So if we're after the glory of God being formed in us, Christ being formed in us, then our next question that we need to ask is, how can I as an individual help form Christ in my brothers or sisters? What, what can I do to promote this process to help us all become more like our Master and our Lord? In the Gospels, you see a twofold ministry of Jesus. You see a very public ministry where Jesus is out ministering to the masses, preaching the gospel to the masses, serving, healing, feeding, whatever it might be. There's a very public ministry going on. And we've kind of considered that in previous studies. What we're going to consider this morning is the private ministry that Jesus also had going on, where he had chosen out of the masses 12. And then even out of the 12, he had his three. And he poured into them and he prepared them for what was about to take place. So there's the public ministry, there's the private ministry of Jesus. We're considering the private ministry. And our question today is this. What model do we find in, in the Scriptures to answer the question, how is discipleship done? What are the pragmatics of it? Now, I might disappoint you because you might be thinking for the nuts and bolts of how it's done this morning. I can't give you that because really it's, it's going to be changing all the time. The culture will be shifting, and the nuts and bolts are to shift to that, pragmatically. 
But there are principles generally that guide the pragmatics. That's what we're after today. Okay? And like I said, this is not going to be new truth to you, I don't think. But it's good, solid truth. And when practiced, it's what will, in our second point of our mission vision statement, it's what will lead to transformation. So it's very important. Very important truth. Four points I'm going to consider this morning. You can write these down. The first command, as we saw uh, two weeks ago, first command given to Adam and Eve in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, is also mirrored in the New Testament. So we're going to consider that. Be fruitful and multiply. Secondly, we're going to consider the family as a picture of discipleship. We're going to consider various scriptures talking about that. The third point, we're going to look at what I identified as the private ministry of Jesus, choosing out the twelve, and from them, three. And then lastly, we're going to look at those very special relationships within a church that happen. The Timothy to Paul, the Paul to Barnabas, the apostles to Barnabas. Um, they're, they're rare, but oh so good when the Lord brings that one person into your life who you, you connect with and He uses to build you and vice versa. So let's get going. Open up to Genesis 1. The first command we find in Scripture, before sin ever entered the picture, God is in day six. He's created Adam and Eve. Adam's finished naming the animals. So he takes Adam and Eve on a little walk. And in verse 28, he says this, God bless them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we see man given the command to go out into the earth that God has now created, full of animals, full of life. He says, go out into the earth, multiply, that is, fulfill or subdue it. They were given dominion, authority over all of physical creation. And that's understanding this. This is within the context of the family unit, right? Adam and Eve had come together as husband and wife in our terms today. They were to procreate, fill the earth, and subdue it, and exercise authority, righteous authority, over all of creation. And it was to be in that picture of the family context. In the New Testament, we see the same parallel truths given at the Great Commission. So if you want to turn to Matthew 28, Genesis 1 is the opening of creation, the opening of all of history. Matthew 28 represents, in a very real sense, the opening of the new covenant, the opening of the new period. And what do we find we find these same parallel truths that God gave in Genesis 1.28. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we see the command Jesus gives to the apostles once again to what? Go out into all the earth and do what? Make disciples. So it's not physical procreation, but it is spiritual procreation. You are now converting people to Christ and commanding them to follow Him. We also see the element of authority given. No longer does Adam and Eve have authority. They let go of that when they sinned. But authority is reinstated through Jesus, right? All authority has been given to me as your head. Go therefore and make disciples. So in summary, the creation of mankind opens up with God wanting man, bearing His image, to multiply across the earth. That's God's desire. Obviously, sin screwed that up. In the New Covenant inauguration, what's God doing? The same thing. Under Christ as our head, under His authority, He commands His disciples to once again go out into all the earth and multiply. So this gives us a picture of what God is after in discipleship, right? This is the big picture framework. What does God want? As a church, we want to discern, God, what are, what are you trying to do in the earth with the church? What is the church to be about? Here's the big picture. 
Go out into the earth and multiply. Bear my image. You have my authority. Go. So there's the big picture. But secondly, as I said, the family structure, the family unit that God set up in Adam and Eve gives us a picture also for what discipleship and the relationships that discipleship takes on. Now, we're not going to turn to all these passages, but I want you to listen to the, the words that the New Testament uses to talk about the nature of a relationship between first the church and our Lord and then the church with each other. And notice the nature of all of them. First, the church in relation to Jesus. We're called the children of God. Children of God. First John 3, 1, over and over actually. But that's a good one. Behold, uh, we are children of God, John says. The church is also described as His household. The church is described as God's body. In Ephesians 5, the church is described as God's bride. Jesus himself identifies with us as our brother, mother, sister. In Mark 3, you remember when some people told Jesus as he's speaking to a group, he said, hey, Jesus, your mother and brother are outside. And he answers them. He says, who's my mother? Who's my mother? Who's my brother? It's not those who do the will of God. That's who my mother, brother, and sister are. So he identifies with us. Jesus himself identifies as our brother. Turn to John 15 with me real quick. And we'll read this last one. In John 15, this is the upper room discourse right before Jesus is crucified. Verse 15. Actually, verse. Uh, let's just begin reading in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So the very terms that are used to describe the relationship between the church and our Lord are all family terms. Mother. God is called our Father. Jesus is called the Son. Jesus calls us His mother, brother, sisters. He calls us His friends. And He's not talking just about a, a loose friendship here. He's talking in context about, hey, I've let you in on these secrets of God. I don't just open this up to everybody. I've made known to you these things. I call you my friends, trusted friends. We're said to be His household. The refuge that we all go to to seek. We're His body. These are all some of the most intimate terms you can find and use to describe relationships today. Let's turn now and look at how the Scriptures talk about the relationship and its nature that we are to have with one another. Too many Scriptures to list, but over and over in the New Testament, we are called what? Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. The Apostle John, in his epistles, repeatedly uses this phrase, my little children, and then he uses the phrase, beloved. That's a term I reserve for my wife. <laughs> John is calling his disciples, my beloved. You see the intimacy there. Jude, the book of Jude, addresses his audience the same way. Beloved. Paul calls himself the father of the Corinthians in the Lord. He begot them in Christ. He fathered them in Christ. Paul calls Timothy, my son, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We know it wasn't biological, but his relationship with Timothy was so close, so intimate, he regarded him as my son. Peter calls Mark, the one who abandoned Paul in Acts. You remember that? John Mark. Peter calls Mark, my son, in 1 Peter 5.13. Paul, speaking to the Thessalonians, we looked at this two weeks ago, he compares his love and care for that church to a nursing mother, 1 Thessalonians 2.7. And then we see in Ephesians 4.25, Paul writes that the church, you guys are members of one another. That's an intimate term. 
I know, uh, I don't know about you, but I try to take care of myself. I don't intentionally harm my members of my body. Once again, we see the Scripture identifying what is the nature of the relationship that we should have with one another, church. And it uses all the same kind of terms used to describe our relationship with the Lord. Intimate terms. Family terms. Now what do you usually find in church? You usually find a distance between its members, right? And so this is where the rubber begins to meet the road and how we're going to wrap up our discipleship series. How do we as a church get from just seeing each other Sunday morning, saying hi, and yet there's a distance between us? How do we get from that to regarding one another as, man, I have so much, in, so much care and affection for you that I actually regard you as my brother and my sister. I actually treat you as I would treat my own body. I've served you as a nursing mother would serve their infant child. Now, I've got a great picture of that this last week and a half. Our little boy is completely helpless. And unless Jill, over this week and a half, were diligent every two hours to feed him, he'd die. That's how intimate that relationship is that Paul describes his care and concern for the Thessalonians. How do we get to that as a church? Let's look at it. What did Jesus do when he began his ministry? All these terms point to the same reality. Intimacy. Life being done together. Right? When something happens to your family... It affects everyone in the family. You're not isolated within the household. It affects all. Life is done together in a family unit. The terms used to describe the church are all familiar terms. Intimacy is what's needed within the church, not just acquaintance. So we've got to move from acquaintanceship to intimacy. How do we do that? Shared experience in the gospel truths. That's how you do it. You share your experiences of the Lord working in each other's lives. And you walk with each other in it, good and bad. We don't want to share just squared footage, which is most often what happens. We want to enter each other's life and circumstance to become intimately concerned with each other. So, how do we facilitate that? In the Gospel accounts, and this is our third point, what did Jesus do? Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus had started His ministry. And even before He had all of the apostles and disciples named, large crowds were beginning to follow Him. But it comes to a point where He chooses the twelve. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, He called to Him, his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then he names them. We're not going to read all of that. Then if you were to read the rest of Matthew 10, I summarized it. The entire chapter of Matthew 10 is literally for the twelve. That's who the audience is. So Jesus has got the masses following him. What's he done? He's pulled out of the masses, 12 people. He sits them down. He says, look, this is for you, the 12. I'm going to begin pouring into you and building you up. So this is the inauguration of Jesus' private ministry to the 12, preparing the church age. Let me summarize Matthew 10 for you. In verses 1-4, through he names them. In verses 5 through 15, he sends them out. Sound familiar? Genesis 1 and Matthew 28, go out into the earth. That's my desire. We find him sending them out, 5 through 15. In verses 16 through 25, he warns them about the reality of persecution, about the reality of resistance and the need to become like their master. That's the reality disciples need to to get. Verses 26 through 33, he encourages them to not fear. Why? Because God is judge and he cares for them. Just as, just as God, just as I have a special love for my children, doesn't mean I don't love your children. I love everyone's children here. But I have a special love for my children, right? And so when he sends his disciples, his children out, 
He, re he reiterates, I love you. I'm for you. I'm with you. Then in verses 34 through 39, uh, they are beginning to make converts and disciples, understanding it's, uh, it, it can be divisive, right? Um, watch out for divisiveness. In verses 40 and 40 through 42, reward for faithful obedience is spoken of. So Matthew 10, Jesus inaugurates the 12. He chooses the 12 out, and then he focuses solely on those 12. And I made a list of, of all the things that this model, Jesus pulling the 12 out, what it afforded those 12. One, they had exclusive access to Jesus. Jesus was always serving. He was always going out. He was always surrounded by the masses. But he also took time to separate himself out and just focus on these 12. And they were given exclusive access to Jesus to ask him questions. For instance, you remember Peter saying, Hey, Lord, teach us how to pray. When we listen to you pray, I recognize I don't know how to pray. So they privately could come to Jesus and say, Teach us. The parables, when Jesus would speak openly in parables to the masses, his disciples would be like, Hey, what's that mean? Privately. And he'd explain it to them. So they were taught how to pray. They were taught personally, given personal explanation of truth from Jesus. They were encouraged by Him privately. They were also rebuked by Him privately. You remember the account of Peter pulling the Lord aside when He said, hey, I'm about to go suffer. And Peter says, nah, far be it from you to suffer. And Jesus said, you're not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of men. Rebuke happened privately. They saw what ministry should look like, look like and focus on. I thought of when, when the 5,000, Jesus fed the 5,000. You remember that account? They've been following Jesus all day. They go up on the mountain and they were hungry. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, send them away. And He says, No, you feed them. What's Jesus doing privately? Focusing, Hey, this is your ministry opportunity. Don't give it up. You do something about it. So Jesus taught them what ministry should look like, what it should focus on. They literally did life together for three years as, as the twelve. Those are the things that afforded the disciples growth. It afforded them opportunity to failure and yet be restored. It afforded them opportunity to ask questions when they didn't understand things. It afforded them the opportunity to establish spiritual disciplines when they recognized, I don't have that in my life. And so the model of discipleship is so intentional by Jesus. We all need that. When we come to faith, none of us has it figured out. None of us are established in spiritual disciplines. How do we do that for one another? You've got to have a small group kind of mentality. It's very difficult for these things to happen on Sunday morning. I'm not saying it can't happen, but I am saying if it does happen, it's going to be limited. What Jesus did is He did public ministry just like we're doing now, but then He would take the twelve and He'd, he'd get intimate with them, just like a family. He did life together. Look, when I'm training up my own children, uh, you know, there's, there's the stigma of, Pastor's kids, right? <laughs> PKs, they're not well looked at. And I'm very well aware of that. But at the same time, you know what? My kids are sinners just like yours. <laughs> they're going to fail. And that's okay. You know, I don't want my pride to be so great that I don't let my kids failure, fail publicly. Uh, they need that. But privately, what I do with them is what matters, Right? I take them back privately in home, and that's where the training begins. That's how it happens. That's the model for the church. And so if a church doesn't have this kind of mentality, if, if, if we're focused solely on this hour, Sunday morning, we are failing at what we should be doing as a family of God. We are not accomplishing anything that Jesus did with His twelve. You have to have time outside of Sunday morning where you're pouring into one another. People have to have the opportunity to be rebuked, to be corrected, to be taught, to, to have questions. Just yesterday morning, I was talking with Connor at, at our men's small group Saturday morning. And that point was brought up by Connor about some of the men he works with. And hey, you know, they were turned off from the church because they asked questions and the church just kind of blew them off. 
And man, that breaks my heart. The church should allow for that environment to happen. You're not going to grow if you don't get it. I don't preach in a way where I, I allow you to just raise your hand and ask questions. Maybe I should Sunday morning. Might be kind of fun. We need a small group environment. That's what the scripture lays out. That's, that's the basis. This, this model of Jesus pulling out the 12 from the masses is the basis for why we at Waypoint, one of the first things we did when we started was we wanted small groups established because we recognize for community to be transformational in our life. We're not just interested in doing church. We want to be disciples. For that to happen, we have to have an avenue where transformation can happen. And for Waypoint, what we've intentionally chosen is that's going to be our small groups. For you to grow, that's your avenue at Waypoint to really do it. It gives us the best opportunity for the interaction necessary for us to fail together, forgive each other, to develop the fruit of the Spirit. Let me ask you this. Have you ever observed these things? It was in the context of Jesus' small group that the twelve learned how to pray. It wasn't publicly, it was privately. I can remember when I came to faith, I was clueless on how to pray. So what I would do is I'd just listen to men that I really admired and, and what are they talking about? What are they saying? How are they structuring their prayer? That's how I learned how to pray. But I did it in a private context. Have you ever noticed it was in the context of Jesus' small group that the disciples learned those things? As in the context of Jesus' small group, very often that He corrected them. Guys, when we correct one another, and hopefully we are correcting one another, let me say this. Um, a church that's not correcting each other is not going to be a healthy church. Um, but the way in which we correct one another is paramount. You do it with gentleness. You do it with respect. Sometimes, unfortunately, like Matthew 18 says, you get to a point where Church discipline is necessary, but even then, you've made every effort privately to deal with something. But, but when, when a brother comes to you privately and respects who you are, and they, they create a situation where they, they are trying to protect your integrity, yet there's clearly an issue in your life that you need to be spoken about, that's the context. It's in the small group setting. It's what Jesus did. So when it comes to Christian fruit-bearing, I believe this model put forth in Scripture of the small groups is what best provides that environment for Christians to bear mature fruit. I've said this before from the pulpit. In Galatians 5, when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, every one of those is relational. Love, joy, peace, patience, all those things. They're relational terms. You, you don't have patience with nobody. <laughs> you have patience with people. You exercise kindness toward people, right? You exercise self-control in relation to yourself. You exercise love in relation to God and others. They're all relational terms. So you literally have to have an environment, a context, for you to practice the fruits of the Spirit. I believe that this small group model is what best provides that. So, on Sunday mornings... This is our time for the body to unite together. That's why I read Psalm 133. This is a time where we're unified in our praise, unified in our prayer, unifying each other around God's truth. We're all together being built up. But what has to happen from there? We've got to break out and let's start doing it. Let's start ingraining this stuff in each other's lives. We've got to get to a place where we're not content just to come here Sunday morning. I want to be with you during the week so that this can be fleshed out in our life. So that when tragedy happens in each other's lives, I don't find out about it four weeks later. When you're struggling with something, maybe a sinful thing, maybe just depression, maybe whatever it is, I know about it. And you're able, you have an avenue to open up with someone and pray with them. Receive encouragement in the Lord. To have someone come carry your burden, as the Scripture says, the law of Christ demands. That's the law of the Lord. It's loving each other. So carry one another's burdens. So we break out. We all have these needs. I spoke several weeks ago on the, the fact that when God told Adam before Eve was made, before sin entered the, the picture, it's not good for you to be alone, Adam. And my whole point in that was, it is very real 
for people to need people. People best correspond to people. Even in perfection, Adam couldn't correspond to God. There was none found in his likeness. He was alone, God said. And he needed Eve to correspond to him. That's the beauty of of the incarnation of Christ. Jesus, in the incarnation, came as a man so we could perfectly correspond to him and he to us. But from the 12, it gets even more refined. Turn to the Gospel of Mark. I made this point earlier. There's several passages. I'll just read the first one. Mark 5, 37. All right. Let's let's, uh, read in verse 35 and following. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Of course, Jesus goes on to raise the little girl from the dead. Again, in Mark 9 and Mark 14 and other Gospels, we see Jesus doing that. They come to a place of ministry. All the twelve are following, and what's Jesus do? Hey, Peter, James, and John, come here. Right? On the Mount of Transfiguration, who is up on the mount with him? Peter, James, and John. In the Garden of Gethsemane, who did he call to pray with him? Peter, James, and John. Over and over and over, you see Jesus focusing on those three. Why those three? Well, James became the first martyr of the church. John became the last apostle to die. And Peter became the the disciple or apostle to the Jews. Paul said of those three when he was converted in Galatians chapter 2, he said, those three men were pillars in the church when I came there to Jerusalem. They were recognized. And Jesus intentionally poured into them more than he did the others. Because he knew They were going to be pillars in the church. So I think it's biblical to say, you know what? We need small groups. We need that group of 12. But what should also be happening is is from that, you guys should be breaking out even even smaller groups. That's where intimacy begins. There's things in my life that I would share with a small group that I wouldn't share from the pulpit. And then there's things in my life that I wouldn't even share with the 12, but I'd share with the three. And I have that. Our eldership is structured intentionally this way. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If, if you've seen me at Men's Small Group, I like opening up. I like sharing. I try to cut it out because I get my time in the pulpit here. I'll let everyone else. But you know what? I, I have Bo and Dwayne. And I share with those men things that I don't share with anybody else. And I can go to those men in confidence with things I can't anyone else. And that's intentional. That's biblical. That's why I believe so strongly in a plurality of eldership, not a senior pastor model. I need help. I'm young. I'm green. I need accountability. I need encouragement. Who is that for me? It's all of you guys, but very intentionally, Bo and Dwayne. That's how an eldership should look and work. You need that too. Now who it, who it is, I don't know. But I do know this, you'll never find those two or three people in your life if you're not trying to make connections with someone somehow outside of this setting. But you need it. You need it. We all go through the seasons of life where there's those few people, man, I I can just go to. And they're, they're a source of strength. They're a source of encouragement for me. No Christian can live an individual Christian life. I tell you, one of the most frustrating things that I hear is those people who think they don't need the church. Those Christians who, who've written off the church and just do it alone. They have no idea who the Lord is. They are so outside of the Lord's will. It, it just it makes me frustrated because they have a much higher view of themselves than they ought. None of us are strong. Paul warned us that, right? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, lest you fall. We need this structure. The Bible over and over and over, puts it before us. So here again, the principle is easy. Mass gatherings on Sunday morning is needed. It's commanded. But we also need to break it down into more intimate personal groups where real fellowship and growth can occur. And then even still, I need to find, Lord, bring someone in my life. Bring that 
second or third person in my life. Call them life groups. I've heard them called. Call them whatever you want. We need that. But it gets even more personal. This is my last point. Every, every Timothy needs a Paul. Every Paul needs a Barnabas. Every Barnabas needs a so on. I want to do something with you. Go to the book of Acts. I'm going to mar- march backwards through the book of Acts to see, to show you how this looks in the Scripture. This is easily unnoticed in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, this is Paul's second missionary journey. Verse 1 says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. And yet his father was Greek. This is where Paul was introduced to the one he would later come to call my son. It's where that relationship began. But I want you to notice, it's in context, the end of chapter 15, what had just happened. Barnabas and Paul split over John Mark. Well, who is Barnabas to Paul? Barnabas was to Paul what Paul was to Timothy. (laughs) What did the Lord do in that? Barnabas is the one who took Paul when he was fresh and green, a new convert, took him to Jerusalem and said, hey, what Paul's telling you about his conversion is true. I'm a witness to it. Then later on when Paul, uh, when when revival broke out in Antioch, which became the home of the church, the the, um, Gentile church, the apostles send Barnabas down there to get things going. What's Barnabas do? Goes up to Tarsus, finds Paul, and then comes back down and says, Paul, you're helping me in this ministry. Barnabas took Paul by the hand and matured him. When they split, did Paul just try and go it on his own? Immediately, what did the Lord do? Brought Timothy into his life and says, Paul, you're going to reproduce what Barnabas did for you in Timothy. Well, who discipled Barnabas? In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, it was the apostles. It was the apostles who first identified Barnabas as the son of encouragement and recognized that he was a spirit-filled man. And they knew him intimately, intimately enough where they would be confident to send Barnabas to do these works. They knew him. Well, who discipled the apostles? Go to Acts chapter 1. Obviously, it's, it's an obvious answer, but I want you to see how Luke says this. We know the answer is the Lord. The Lord discipled the apostles. He called the twelve and then He built up the three. But did that work end when Jesus went up to heaven? No. Acts verse 1, chapter 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus what? Began to do and to teach. He didn't finish it. That work of discipleship is still to go on and we see it traced through Acts. Jesus to the twelve, the twelve to Barnabas, Barnabas to Paul, Paul to Timothy, and so on and so on, so that each and every one of us are part of that living chain that was began by our Lord. That's why I can say confidently, if the church is not developing those kind of relationships, we are outside of that chain of Christ. Jesus began that work, and it will not be finished until the end of the age, according to the Great Commission. So where does this leave us? Like I said, I consider these truths to be pretty basic truths. They're not difficult to understand. The difficulty is shifting our thinking and shifting our living to incorporate them into practice. Would you agree with that? It means we have to rearrange our life to accommodate these principles. If I'm going to develop relationships with the 12 and then with the three, and potentially even with that one person, you know what it's going to require of me? I might have to give some stuff up to do it. That's the hard part. But I'll tell you this, that's where the reward is. That's why I read in Matthew 10, Jesus promised the reward. (laughs) The reward is people. We're about to sing a song at the end. Don't come up yet. (laughs) The song we're about to sing here is going to talk about that, right? That's where the joy of life is. You know, life is not, 
Why, why are people so miserable today? It's because they're trying to just live out their dreams. Individualistic, right? I tell you what, there's no more satisfaction than when you get in tune with what the Lord's doing and do it. That's where fulfillment happens. That's where joy is found. When you align yourself with the program God has for the church, it's a pragmatic section of our series. As I said earlier, there's not really any necessarily right or wrong way to facilitate those kind of relationships. Hopefully, you don't have to program it. <laughs> Hopefully, it happens, right? Hopefully, you're involved in each other's lives and, and, and the Lord is just drawing your heart to this one person. You're like, man, I'm just being drawn to this individual. And so you take that step and you call them and say, hey, let's go get lunch. You reach out and boom, something beautiful happens. And the Lord uses you to pour into them and, and vice versa. They're pouring into you and you, you flourish in your walk because you know what? You may be exactly what that individual needs right at that moment in their life and where they're at in their walk. And they might be exactly what you needed. But if you'd never rearranged your schedule to make that first step, take that leap of faith, follow the Spirit's prompting and convicting, you'll never know. And you'll miss out on it. And you'll just go to work and you'll go home. And you'll go to work and you'll come home. And you'll be missing what the Lord's doing and building up His bride and what He wants and has equipped you spiritually to do. So I don't want it to be a program. I'm hesitant to say, do this, then do this, and then do this. I don't want that. I'll just kind of quench it, you know? I want you guys to be motivated to say, you know, I want that kind of relationship with people in the church. I want, a, I want the intimacy where I could say, man, I look at you like I look at my son. I have that kind of love for you. Where it's not a distinction, but it takes time. It takes effort. Intimacy is not offered by people at first meeting. Have you ever noticed that? Even with husband and wife. I'm more intimate with my wife now than I was when I first married her. We were still married but I know her deeper now than I did at first. Intimacy takes time to develop, but we've got to develop it if we want a flourishing relationship. We've got to make ourselves vulnerable with a few people, and we've got to allow them to be vulnerable to us. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen. That's why I'm hesitant to say, do this and do that. But I will say this, if it doesn't happen somehow, some way, at some time, the church will be stagnant. It will be stagnant. Ultimately, what is Christ doing? He's forming the image of His Son in us. And He's using people to do it. We are His workmanship, Paul said, Ephesians 2.10. God's not doing this work apart from the church. He's doing this work through the church. That's His sovereign plan. So if you're not plugged in somehow using your gifts to do that work, you're not being molded in His image. So transformational community is the second point of our mission and vision statement, what we desire to see. It's centered on the gospel. It's what we've talked about this morning. It's happening in our small groups. It's already beginning. This excites me. It's already beginning to happen breaking down into threes and breaking down into those individuals. That's exciting. I, I've, I've told people this. When I see just organically it start happening, I want to do all I can to keep encouraging it. It's what I see happening. It's what we want to be about as a church. It's a very practical, pragmatic way. So where are we going from here? We're going to talk about the importance of the church the next two weeks in church membership. Being members of one another. It's not just an attendance policy. I, I could care less about that. I don't take role, right? Now, I do notice if someone's just being rebellious and not coming, then you know it's an issue. But um, I'm not going to keep a scorecard of, of, hey, you haven't been here in two weeks kind of thing. But I want to be members with you. I want to do life together with you. We're members of one another. We're going to talk intimately the next two weeks about what that means so that we can understand how important, how really beautiful church membership is. It's a big thing. It's a beautiful thing. So I'll call Ronnie up now. After you curveball earlier. And uh, I'll close this in prayer. And as I pray, I just want you to think about if, if you don't have a, a clear sight of how you can get plugged in, 
Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just start asking the Lord, Lord, I want this. I want what Seth talked about, but I'm not sure where I fit in yet. And just ask him, would you open that avenue for me? Would you make that path clear to me? Whatever it looks like, however it's going to be, whatever my cost, open yourself up to be used in that way by the Lord. He wants to use you in that way, to speak into someone's life and for someone to speak into yours. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as I, um, as I think about the last almost two decades that I've come into relationship with you, Lord, I can, I can look back and see seasons where you brought certain individuals into my life at just the right time, just the right moment, who provided me just what I needed. I'm so thankful for those people who were willing to give of themselves to pour into me. You've matured me through it. You've you've given me greater insight into your truth through it. You've expanded the borders of my love because of it. You've challenged me in ways I never would have been challenged before. Father, I pray that for Waypoint. Father, you are molding people into the image of your Son, whom you have said and testified, I am well pleased with Jesus. And Paul would later say, we are co-workers of Christ calling people, one, to salvation in Him, and then two, forming them into His image, which was lost at the fall. That that righteous and holy image that Paul says in Ephesians, we were created in. And yet you use people to bring it out, to develop, to form. Father, knit our hearts together in unity and love for one another so that we would be willing to sacrifice what we must in our life, in our schedules, so that we could pour into one another. That those relationships would be worth everything. They would become our pursuit, our desire, our longing, as it was for Paul. He was in travail until Christ was formed. He agonized over their immaturity. I I just, I, I look forward to growing in love, in unity with this group of people, Lord. You've already expressed your love so much in their acts of service to us, to Jill and I, in their kindness. Father, give me opportunity to reciprocate it back to them. It's my desire, Father. May it overflow and abound more and more so that our church would be recognized as a church that loves one another, that cares for one another, that sacrifices for one another. Even as it was said of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, wow, look at how he loved that man. Father, may it be said that of us. Wow, look at how they love one another. I want that. So move us there, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.